So we're looking at Matthew chapter 26, and we'll start um, at verse 30. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face, face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I think we need to beware of the words, I would never. I think we need to be careful about saying those words, I would never. Some of you know this story, but when I was about to graduate from college, I was looking to go to a seminary, and I looked at a number of different seminaries, and there were several people that recommended Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And in my mind, I said, I would never go to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. I don't know why, uh, probably because I just didn't, I don't know why. I just said, I'm not going there. Like, I had these other options. Then somehow I graduated from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. A couple years ago, um, I went to Florida and kind of passed through the Orlando area, and I, I said to myself, I don't like this area. I would never want to go on vacation in Orlando. Then I had a child, and we went on vacation to Orlando last month, had a great time. A few years ago, I, I lost 60 pounds, and I was really excited, and I said in my heart, I'm never going to go back to the way I was. I'm never going to eat unhealthy again. And I did. Went back to it. Beware saying the words, I would never. I remember a talk I heard in seminary. Um, it was a kind of a counseling um, professor, and he had worked with a lot of pastors that had fallen into uh, serious sin and you know, things like you know, committing adultery and things like that. Um, and I remember something that he said. He said, most of the people who have you know, fallen into this sin or that, at one time in their life, they said, I would never do fill in the blank. And yet they did. He's seen this with a multitude of celebrity pastors and televangelists who have triumphantly proclaimed, I would never fill in the blank. You know, and then they're caught with a prostitute or having an affair or whatever the case may be. 
And it seems like sometimes those who denounce behaviors the strongest, who say, I would never the strongest, it's those people who find themselves committing that exact sin. And I think that's the case in the passage that we're looking at today. Jesus predicts that the disciples are going to fall away. Now remember, the disciples and Jesus have a really close relationship. We don't know exactly how long Jesus' ministry was, but we know that um, it could have been up to about three and a half years. And so they're traveling around with Jesus. They're eating with Jesus. I mean, they're just listening to everything that Jesus has to say. I mean, the time that they spent together was incredible. And now Jesus says these things to them that you're going to fall away, and it's probably offensive to their sensibilities. And so Peter, the spokesman for the group, says triumphantly, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And it says in the text that all the disciples have said the same thing. I'll never abandon you. I'll never deny you. Just a matter of moments later, probably minutes, maybe an hour. We don't know exactly how long, but not long later, we see in verse 56, it says, after Jesus was arrested, then all the disciples left him and fled. And it seems like on the surface, Peter did a little bit better. He followed Jesus from a distance. And he's, as he's following him, it's like, okay, maybe Peter's going to stay faithful. But then he faces some questions, and then we see that he does even worse than the other disciples. Not only does he abandon Jesus, but he denies even knowing him three times. The one who said so firmly, I would never abandon you, I would never deny you, he's the one that does the worst. But we're saying the words, I would never. What's wrong with those words, I would never? Uh, I think the first problem is the first two words, I would. Quite simply, it's me who's in charge. I'm the master of my destiny. I'm going to will it so that this is not going to happen. And the problem with that is that good intentions are not enough. T.S. Eliot once astutely said this, most of the evil in the world, in this world, is done by people with good intentions. And Jesus indicates there's a difference between the spirit and the flesh, between what we want to do and the flesh that sometimes leads us astray. For example, my spirit says that I should get up six o'clock every morning and I should run three miles. That's a really good thing. That's a good aspiration. And I fully believe that if I did that, I would be healthier and it would be good. But if I set my alarm for 6 a.m. and then I wake up and it looks like it does out today and I'm tired, maybe a little bit sore, my flesh says it's a lot better to stay in bed. Like It's a lot better option than to run around. And so there's a difference between the spirit and the flesh. And uh, Romans 7, 21 to 25, Paul talks about this struggle he says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks to be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so when we say, I would, we're saying, I'm in control, that I have these good intentions, and these good intentions are going to carry me where I need to go. 
Then you have the last word, never. When we say, I would never, it's like, I'm not even tempted by this. Like, I could never fall into something like this. And we have this kind of arrogance or haughtiness about us that I would never even struggle with this. I would never have a temptation. This isn't going to happen. Beware the words, I would never. Now think about it from Jesus' perspective. Jesus is God perfect in every way. If there's anyone who could say the words, I would never, it would be Jesus. He's getting ready to be arrested, go to the cross. And in those moments, he's going to have opportunities for temptation. Now now think about it. Just a few verses later, he says that he could call down 10,000 angels. And think about it. As he's being whipped, as he's being ridiculed, as the nails are going into his hands, of course there'd be a temptation He could just snap his fingers, and in a moment, the angels will come and rescue him. All the pain would be gone, and he'd be in the presence of God. And so there's a real temptation there. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't going to to, to give in to that temptation, but it was there. But why doesn't Jesus give in to the temptation? Well, of course, he's the Son of God, and so that's part of it. But I think there's more to it than that. He doesn't give in to the temptation because he abides in the presence of God before he's in the trial. He abides in the presence of God before he gets to the trial. He prays in anguish to God. If there's any other way, like, I don't want to go down this path. I don't want to go to the cross. It's not something that's fun. It's not something that's going to be uplifting. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. And so if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not... My will, but your will be done. See, he settled that issue before he gets to the trial. And he spent time with God, abided in the presence of God. And it starts off like, Lord, you know, if there's any possibility, take this away. To the end where he's just resolute, okay, if this is the only way, this is what I'm going to do. And so he spent time in the presence of God. And that causes him to be able to get through the temptation as he resolutely endures the shame of the cross. And of course, the primary test in this passage and the kind of the trajectory of what Matthew is talking about is Jesus' test, but there's also the test of the disciples as well. Are they going to stay faithful to Jesus? Or are they going to abandon him? And Jesus brings three of his disciples, the closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him, and they're just a short distance from him, and he asks them to stay awake, keep watch. But they keep falling asleep. And then Jesus again says to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, he may be encouraging Peter to pray that he might not fall into the temptation to sleep again. And, I mean, that could be part of it. I think it's not as likely because, I mean, think about it. Imagine that you go home tonight, and whatever time you go to bed, you get in bed, and try praying for an hour that you don't fall asleep. Try try doing that. Unless you have insomnia and you couldn't sleep already, you're probably going to fall asleep. I think Jesus is saying something a little bit different here. I think Jesus is saying, okay, Peter, you've pledged your undying loyalty to me. You've said, you'll never leave me, you'll never deny me. And I ask you this one simple thing, just stay awake, 
keep watch with me for one hour, and you can't even stay awake for one hour. How often does the, do those things happen in our own lives? Where it's like, okay, Jesus, I'll do anything that you want me to do. Like, if you want me to change jobs, I'll change jobs. If you want me to be a missionary, I'll be a missionary. If you want me to do this or that, I'll do it. And God's like, well, that's great, but right now I just want you to spend some time with me. I mean, it's simple, but we don't do it. Right now I just want you to deal with this sin that you're dealing with. It's simple, it's right before us, but maybe we don't do it. And I think Jesus is saying, okay, Peter, you've pledged your loyalty, but you can't even stay awake for one hour to keep watch. But I think he's saying even more than that. He tells Peter to pray that they would not fall into temptation. I think he's getting, trying to get Peter ready for the trial that's coming. I think he's telling Peter and the disciples to pray in, that in their moment of testing, they wouldn't be tempted to deny, give up, or walk away. Yet rather than pray, they sleep, and the result is they abandon Jesus, Peter denies him, and the result is disastrous. There's something really interesting in this passage. See, Peter's the one who first pledges us his loyalty. I mean, the, the whole direction, we see Peter coming up again and again. Peter's the one who pledges his loyalty. Peter's the one who's addressed in this passage. And then Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. Later, he's going to be restored with the threefold question. How many times does Jesus pray in this passage? Three times. Three times. He, Jesus prays three times, and then... Or Jesus prays three times, then Peter denies Jesus three times. I think it's more than a coincidence. What if, instead of sleeping, Peter was praying three times? Maybe the story would be different. What if he was praying, God, help us to be faithful in the moment of trial, even when our master is taken away from us. Help us not to deny. Help us not shrink back in fear. Help us to be faithful to our master. But he doesn't. Now, why doesn't he pray? Why isn't he staying awake? I mean, if you're in a moment in your life of tragedy where, you know, there's uncertainty about the future, kind of the human response would be like to be awake. Like, it's hard to sleep if something really scary or important is happening in your life and is imminent. And so Jesus is about to be taken away to the cross. Why doesn't Peter stay awake and pray? I think it's probably because he thinks he doesn't need to. Thinks he doesn't need to. If he has this mindset, I would never, I would never abandon him. I would never deny him. It's not going to happen. My will is going to keep me from doing that. Why does he need to pray? It's already settled in his mind. He's going to do it. There's no temptation there in his mind. And so he feels like, I don't have to pray because it's already decided. I'm never going to do that. Beware the words I would never. On the other hand, there's power in the words I will. I will abide in the presence of God. I will walk in the Spirit. See, growth in the Christian life doesn't come by I would nevers. Growth in the Christian life doesn't come by I would nevers. It's when, when we abide in the presence of God, when we seek the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in Him, that's when we can withstand the day of temptation. That's when we could change. And I think there's a problem sometimes 
in, in churches in the United States. And, and I think the problem is that sometimes we build our identity as Christians on I would nevers. Like what it means to be a Christian is that I would never do fill in the blank. Uh, there's an old phrase, uh, hopefully I'll get it right, that I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with girls who do. It, it's, it's that kind of mindset that we're defined by what I don't do. That I would never, you know, get drunk, or I'd never have an abortion, I'd never be promiscuous, I'd never divorce my spouse, I'd never steal, I'd never struggle with my, my faith. And so what it means to be a Christian hangs on those I would nevers. That's what it means to be a Christian, you know, in that mindset. And when that's our mindset, it's kind of easy, like if we just avoid these kind of recognizable, observable, outside sins, then we'll be okay. And so maybe we are for a while. It's like, I would never do those things. And so then we feel like, we don't need God. We don't, we don't need the Holy Spirit. Because we've got those I would nevers taken care of. And so we don't need his presence in, in our lives, and then we, we, we get... So we're like unguarded. And so we're not seeking God's presence. We're not seeking to change. We're not seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance to, to, to change our hearts. If it's just these are the things that are bad, let's avoid these things, then it's not enough. Because our sin nature is much deeper than I would nevers. We think about our sin nature and those I would nevers, they're just the tip of the iceberg. And we know that beneath the iceberg there's so much or deeper. It's not just about what I wouldn't do. Because we can avoid doing things that are wrong for the wrong reasons. We can do the right things for the wrong reasons. We can do the wrong things for the right reasons. We can do the wrong things for the wrong reasons. There's so much complexity to our sin nature and who we are. My son loves to do puzzles. And usually he does like 100 piece puzzles or around there. But imagine that you had a really big puzzle, like a thousand-piece puzzle. And imagine that you've never put that puzzle together before, and you've never even seen the picture of what it looks like for that puzzle to be put together. And then imagine you take that thousand-piece puzzle, and you go into a room that is completely dark, pitch black, and you try to put it together. What's the likelihood that you're going to put it together? Not very likely. And that's a picture of what our lives are like in regards to sin. We're broken, and there's no way that we're going to put ourselves together. There's no way we can put ourselves back together. But when we're saved, Christ comes into our life, and he shines the light of the gospel in our hearts. And then he starts to put the pieces back together. He shines on one piece, and he's like, here, this is where, where you need to put it. And, and he starts to put that picture back together and maybe for some of us, it's like 100 pieces or 200 pieces. But all of us have a long way to go. And the more he puts those pieces together, the more we start to look like Christ. And so that's who we are. Our, our lives are broken. We're, sin affects all of who we are. And the Holy Spirit is overcoming that and putting our lives back together. But imagine in that context, we're like, okay, I would never do fill in the blank. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. Like, it's like, never what? Never fail? Never lead, you know, need the grace and mercy of Jesus? I mean, our life is at, lives are in a thousand pieces. I mean, it's only by his grace that he's putting a, us back together. 
And to say, I would never, like, oh yeah, those you know, other bad people do these things, but I would never do those things. Your life's a mess. My life's a mess. We all need the grace of Jesus. We need his light to put us back together. And so having this mindset, I would never, doesn't cut it. Robert Murray McChain once said this, The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. It's in all of our hearts. Sometimes we pretend like we're not broken. We pretend like we don't need Christ. We have this I would never mindset. And when we do that, that opens us up to temptation. That opens us up to failure because we feel like we don't need the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. That we can put back the pieces of our life by ourselves. But we also see good news in this passage. When we say, I will abide in Christ's presence, I will walk in his spirit, he keeps putting those pieces together and we look more and more like Jesus. And and there's an incredible encouragement that we see in this passage. You see, as we look at this passage, the biggest disciple, of course, is not the disciples' test, but Jesus' test. And the difficult and unpleasant truth of Jesus' test was was that he had to walk the path that God had for him alone, completely alone. I I mean, you can kind of feel for Jesus as he's in his darkest hour. He's calling out to his closest disciples, just stay away from me. Just pray with me. Yet, they can't even do that. One of the disciples has already betrayed him. One is going to deny him. The rest are going to abandon him. And he's walking the path that God has for him completely alone by himself but that's not even the worst part he's going to experience the rejection of the father and that relationship for time is going to be broken and so he has to walk the road that god has for him alone but the good news for us is that he walked that path alone so that we wouldn't have to we don't have to walk the path that god has for us alone he promises that he's going to be with us every step of the way Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission, Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Joni Erickson Tata once said this, You don't have to be alone in your hurt. Comfort is yours. Joy is an option. And it's all been made possible by your Savior. He went without comfort so you might have it. He postponed joy so you might share in it. He willingly chose isolation so you might never be alone in your hurt and sorrow. We're not alone. We have the provision of Christ with us. He promises to walk with us every step of the way. And he walked alone so that we wouldn't have to. And so we have that encouragement that we have him with us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we can trust him every step of the way. But there's also another encouragement as well. There's an encouragement for times when I would never turn into, I failed. You see, Jesus knows that the disciples are going to fail. And he speaks of future restoration of them, even before they fail. He, he could have said, hey, you guys are going to fail me. And then afterwards, you're going to be in big trouble. But he doesn't do that. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Remember the location where they are. They are they're in Judea, Jerusalem. They're facing the, the wrath of kind of the religious establishment. 
This is the place where they're going to abandon Jesus, where they're going to deny him. This is the place of their failure. But Jesus says, okay, you're going to fail me here. But before you even get back home to Galilee, I'm going to be there to meet you. We see in John chapter 21 that he does that. Jesus meets them in Galilee. The disciples are fishing, can't catch anything, and Jesus comes up and he you know, causes them to catch fish. And then he restores Peter, asking him three times, Simon Peter, do you love me? And then he asks him once again, Peter, will you follow me? Will you follow me? Many of us here at one time said, I would never. Some of us maybe said, I would never get divorced. We found ourselves divorced. Some of us said, I would never cheat on my spouse, but we did. Some of us said, I will never go back to this drug that I've been using, and yet we did. Some of us said, I'll never view pornography again, and yet we did. Some of us said, I would never gossip about someone else again, and yet we did. Some of us said, I'll never miss my quiet time again, and yet a day turned into a couple days that turned into weeks, that turned into a pattern. Some of us said, I would never lie again, and yet we did. I think at one time or another, all of us have spoken those words, I would never. The words of Peter, though all fall away because of you, I will never fail you. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But we fail. We fall short of the glory of God. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus goes before us. He knows and provides a provision even before we fail. At that moment of failure, he's already there. He's already there with his arms open wide saying, follow me, repent, find life in me once again. And so for those of us, I think all of us who have said, I would never, and that turned into I failed, there's hope of restoration. We don't have to live in that failure. That Jesus offers us a new life and offers us the opportunity each day to turn from our sin and to follow him. Beware of the words, I would never. There's power in the words, I will abide. I will walk in the Spirit. Because when we abide in Christ, when we walk in the Spirit, that's when we're kept from the I would nevers. That's when we're kept from giving in to temptation. When we have the power of Christ inside of us. There's an old story about a, a, a farm where there was a well in kind of the front of the house. And uh, this was, farm was in New Hampshire. And it was just a really clean really good tasting spring uh, or well and uh, just really cold and refreshing and so they drank out of it for years and even when it was like the heat of the summer when the, there hadn't been any rain in like weeks it still was full and had this cold cool refreshing water well in the course of time the farm started to get modernized and they got running water um, so things started to change, and they ended up covering up that well because uh, they just thought, well, we'll just keep it just in case of an emergency situation, um, and we can use you know, running water. After some time of using the modern technology, one person who lived there decided um, that they wanted that taste of the well. They remember when they were a kid just drinking out of that well and how it tasted so good, it's so cool, and so refreshing. And so they opened up that well, 
uncovered it, poured it, you know, took a bucket down, pulled it up, the well was completely dry. He was really surprised, again, because this well was so full, so cool, even in the heat of winter. And so he talked to some town people and asked what might have happened, and they explained to him what happened. That this well was fed by hundreds of tiny underground rivulets, which seep a steady flow of water into the well. And as long as water is being drawn from that well, as long as it's being taken out, the water keeps flowing, and it doesn't clog up. But the moment that you stop drawing from that well, it just becomes stagnant, and the rivulets get clogged up, and eventually the well becomes dry. See, when we, I think when we drink from the living water, that well that is our hearts is full, satisfied. When we drink from the well, when we abide in Christ, then we can face the temptations of life. Then we can face the trials and challenges of life because we're filled with the living water. But when we stop drinking, when we feel like, I would never, like, I, I, I'm beyond, like, needing God's grace. We have this mindset of, like, that's what it means to be a Christian. I would never do these things. When we have that mindset, we're not drinking from the well. Our hearts dry up. Our hearts dry up. And for a while, maybe, we, like, we can look good on the surface. But then when a real trial, when a real temptation comes, we fail that test. Because we don't have the Holy Spirit guiding us sustaining us again. And so in closing, let us abide in Christ as we draw from his strength and power as we face the trials and temptations of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you had a plan. That you were there even in our failures, that you were, have gone before us making a provision, making a way, even before we were born, even before we had done anything good or bad, you had a plan to rescue us, that you knew we were going to fail, but you chose to go before us to the cross. And we thank you that even when I would never have turned into, turned into I failed, Lord, we thank you that you offer us restoration and hope. Lord, for all of us here today, Lord, I pray that we would drink deeply from your living water. Help us to abide in your presence. Help us to understand that we need you, that our lives are broken puzzle pieces that we can't put together on our own, that it's only by your gospel shining your light into our hearts that we begin to look more like you. Lord, help us to rely on you and trust in you every step of the way. In Jesus' name I pray.